Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, South Africa experienced a wave of riots and looting in July. What does it say about the challenges the country faces as a society? And the hashtag fix the country social movement is going strong in Ghana. Does it have what it takes to change politics? Plus, we discuss the restitution of African art, including the Benin bronzes, and why that's not enough. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. South Africa has suffered one of its most serious bouts of unrest since the end of apartheid. What does this say about President Ramaphosa's leadership? Joining me to discuss South Africa and other topics are Siraj Rasul, professor and director of African program in Museum and Heritage Studies at the University of Western Cape in South Africa, Barnaby Phillips, a journalist and author of the new book, Loot, Britain and the Benin Bronzes, and Charlotte Ashamu, a economic development practitioner and entrepreneur specialized in the creative industries. She's currently leading a global initiative focused on African museums and cultural institutions at Yale University's Institute for the Preservation of Cultural Heritage. Okay, so following the sentencing of former President Jacob Zuma for contempt of court, essentially, riots broke out in KwaZulu-Natal, which is Zuma's home province, and in Gauteng, which includes Johannesburg and, and some other parts of the country. South Africa is facing its worst unrest in recent years. What originally started as protests over arrests and jailing of former President Jacob Zuma shifted to violence and anger over the country's dire social and economic issues. According to an investigation by the Daily Maverick, at least 342 people died in the unrest. Siraj, what has been the reaction to these several days of violence? I suspect it's really spurred some new thinking about or deep reflections about South African politics and structural inequalities. What are the conversations that you're hearing about these events in July? These developments in KwaZulu-Natal, these instances of social unrest, of looting, have been spoken of as an expression of an internal struggle between different factions in the ruling party coming at a time when we have a major national commission of inquiry into what South Africans refer to as state capture. South Africa is a society of combined and uneven development of incompleteness of many contradictions. We've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, something of great significance, not only for South Africa, but for the world, but in which the, one of the outcomes has been a continued situation of impunity on the part of those who committed gross violations of human rights. We have not seen trials of people who were found to have been responsible for such heinous acts. And where we also had the experience of Marikana, in which workers on strike were killed by the police. And so you have a society of contradictions in which the sections of the political class have shown their contempt for democracy and have looted the coffers of the state. And everyone knows what amounts of money are involved. And so when parts of the state lose their legitimacy in this way, you have such strife and such contestation from below. So part of it 
is definitely fomented by those hell-bent on destabilizing the state. There certainly is part of it that is fueled by immiseration, by poverty, by hunger on the part of the masses of the people in those areas who are also going through the experience of deep economic hardship occasioned by lockdown. And here were opportunities to find resources, generally called looting. So you had all of these things involved. One of the most important developments during these times was when ordinary people in townships like such as in Suwetu got together to defend property. What this has really enabled for us is a national conversation about all of the contradictions faced by South Africa. And let me tell you, all of these issues are connected. The issue of restitution is connected because in some ways we are talking about incomplete sovereignty and we are talking about the peculiar contradictions of a society such as South Africa that was colonized in very peculiar ways in which we lived with what we called an internal colonialism or what was also referred to as a colonialism of a special type in which South Africa was simultaneously an ex-colony and it is a former colonizer. Such a nuanced and textured answer, Siraj. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's, you know, you can see in the response, as you said, President Ramaphosa focused on the factional fight, right? Blaming the Zuma loyalists, saying that he won't allow anyone to destroy South Africa's democracy. But then you have, you know, what has been part of South Africa's resilience of people and citizens, ordinary citizens trying to defend property, that sort of response. And then a deep reflection, as you've noted, about sort of the structural inequities, the unevenness of South Africa, its legacy. And I don't want to put you on the spot, so you could answer this question however you want, but what's the report card that people have been giving the president in terms of response and maybe even more important than just what should we think about the days after the violence and the president's response, but what do you see as the next steps? Like, what do people need to see for South Africa? It's a laundry list. We don't have a whole episode to uncover all of it, but just help listeners think about how do we move forward after this? Well, it's very interesting because in the last two days, the president has appeared before the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into state capture to talk about these instances of shuffling of the cabinet, of the firing of ministers, and of how the process of cadre deployment occurs in South Africa, how you become a minister. What kind of qualifications do you need to become a minister? It's been a serious problem where the ruling party appoints people to very important positions in the national cabinet through something which is referred to as the president's prerogative. In other words, the president can appoint and reappoint whoever he likes at any time. It is deeply troubling that this happens like this and that this happens in the name of democracy and it happens in the name of the people. But we have gone through an absolutely terrible experience of lost years under Jacob Zuma's presidency of a family, their surrogates, those connected to them within the state and in the parastatal system of looting the coffers of the society, of completely riding roughshod over the autonomy and the sovereignty of, of South Africa, 
of landing at public airports without any need for passport control or visas. And so the amount of money that has left the coffers of this country has been really intense. And what is needed is for a credible legal system to get a grip on this whole situation. Jacob Zuma is currently in jail. He has many charges, there are many trials, but his lawyers have begun to play a game of delays and of applications for the movement of dates. We need credible evidence that this is a state that is able to deliver resources, that is able to deliver on all of its claims, on all of its promises to the people, that the African National Congress has to live up to the faith that the South African people have placed in it. And that, I think, is still up for grabs. And there are no political alternatives that are possible. And so we are looking at the supposed process of the African National Congress reforming itself, writing itself, and enabling itself to reposition itself as the party of the people. And this is something that is needed so that the projects of restitution, the projects of remaking South Africa in all of these different facets, in all of these different ways, can really be taken forward as a matter of urgency. Thanks, Siraj. And uh, I think that you've, in your answer, given us a number of what I would call signposts to think about reform of the ANC, accountability for any of the violence that happened during the riots, but also the continued strengthening and operation of the courts, whether it's respect to Zuma or the Zondo Commission or looking at state catchers. So that's extraordinarily helpful. Thank you for that. Let's move to our second topic, which is Ghana. There's been a new social movement known as hashtag fix the country, and it's been calling for more jobs and end to corruption, fewer taxes and better education. Some Ghanaians who are fed up with the rising cost of living turn to social media to vent their frustrations under the hashtag fix the country campaign. The group has been expressing its displeasure over successive government's failure to improve the living standards of Ghanaians. In early August, thousands went to the street to rally against the government. And the government seems concerned, or at least its supporters seem concerned, and they've created their own rival hashtags, hashtag fix yourself and hashtag fix your attitude. So here's my take. It does seem like this social movement campaign has legs. It's been active since May. It's resilient and resonant, at least with a certain segment of Ghanaian society. It's channeling the anger of many young Ghanaians. But the questions that I'm sort of struggling with is that, you know, its demands are less concrete, aside from a call for a new constitution. And the government has already been able to sort of cast it as partisanship or, or supporting the opposition. And we may have to see it evolve a little more if it's going to transcend those limitations. And that's where, Barnaby, I wanted to bring you in because... There's been this explosion of hashtag activism in the region recently, and I'm sure our listeners are familiar with Bring Back Our Girls or Ansars in Nigeria. There was Roads Must Fall, which Siraj certainly knows in South Africa. And, and even in the Francophone countries, there's been a lot of these, they've been called sort of hands off our constitution with respect to third terms. And so the question I, I've been struggling with and I kind of alluded to is, 
What makes these hashtags successful versus other? What are the kinds of conditions in your experience, Barnaby, that have been the ones that have made change versus the ones that are sort of peter out? I think they tend to be successful when they have a specific goal that is attainable and tangible, and they're asking for something concrete from an institution which is uh, inclined to give way, if you like. So, for example, roads must fall. Well, in its initial phase, talking about a specific statue of Cecil Rhodes and asking the University of Cape Town for that statue to come down, that's quite attainable. That's quite achievable, realizable. When you move on to a wider goal about decolonizing the university curriculum, not only in South Africa, across the world, well, then things become not so well defined and more ambitious. It also depends a lot, of course, on whom you are asking this change from. Bring back our girls. Well, that's Boko Haram. And they don't care what the likes of you and I are tweeting. They don't even care what Michelle Obama is tweeting. They're not vulnerable to that sort of pressure. So I think it depends what you're asking and who you're asking it from. And of course, this is a, a global phenomenon. I think also that the digital world, for all its power, can't remain in isolation. That There has to be a twin movement, if you like, in the real world that can channel the outrage and that can formulate real policy demands that in practical terms, for example, can go and actually meet politicians or meet the university chancellors who you want change from, that there's a structure behind it. So I'd suggest that those are the means through which hashtag movements can achieve success. Yeah, I think that's aligned with the way that I think about it. I mean, hashtags can be incredible mottos and thematic, right? And I think in America, we've seen some of that as well around Black Lives Matter. And then it sort of becomes a way we think about things. So it still can sort of be frame setting. But that twin movement, like we do have in the US, and we saw with some of the hashtags that we're talking about, Occupy Nigeria, which some people don't know about, I think also kind of gave a framing or Occupy Wall Street in America. So I think we'll have to wait a couple more months to see whether fix the country, where ultimately it goes and how it pushes the conversation. But I think it's definitely something to watch. Okay, we're going to move to our final topic. I have been waiting all season to do this. In fact, we previewed it in our teaser for the season, and then I've just been waiting to get the right team of people together. And I've definitely nailed it. The three of you have really been on the front lines of thinking about, writing about, working with museums on this topic. So I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this very tough topic around restitution and cultural heritage. And probably for most listeners, the starting point is the Benin Bronzes, which has gotten probably the most attention. These were stolen by the British in 1897 and then sold or hand over to museums all over the world, largely in the global north. And Barnaby, you wrote a great book, Loot, which I have really enjoyed. And uh, you talk about this original sin and then all of the debates around what to do with the Benin bronzes and really the history of how Nigeria and Nigerian museums have engaged with the global north around restitution. And I hope maybe just to get us all on the same page, you could walk us through the history and the state of play. The Benin bronzes, as you say, have become emblematic of the debate around restitution, I believe, for two reasons. Firstly, because they are so fabulous amongst the greatest works of art as we now perceive them 
in the West. And also the manner in which they were taken was so egregious and towards the end of the initial period of colonial expansion, very well recorded, even on photographs, very well documented, certainly from the British side. So the evidence of what happened is there. And I think that's why it's captured people's imagination. The Benin bronzes come from the ancient West African kingdom of Benin, which is in modern day Nigeria, not from the Republic of Benin, a smaller Francophone country immediately to the West. So that's the cause of some confusion, of course. They date back many hundreds of years. The Benin kingdom interacted peacefully with successive waves of European explorers and traders, the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French, and finally, the British. But of course, by the mid-19th century, the nature of imperialism was changing, was driven by rivalries in Europe itself. There were bigger commercial interests. The British were interested in rubber. They were interested in palm oil. And they toppled the Oba, the king of Benin, in 1897, sent him into exile, incorporated his lands into what became the protectorate of Nigeria, and almost incidentally looted these thousands of extraordinary works. Most of them are actually not bronze there. Many are brass, but when we talk about Benin bronzes, we're also talking about some wonderful ivory carvings. They were objects of religious, cultural, sacred significance, but once taken to Europe and seen under the cold aesthetic eye of Europe, they became works of art. Several hundred ended up in the British Museum. The British Museum still has the largest collection, but most had been taken by individual officers and were distributed, as you said, primarily around the museums and, and private collections, initially of Europe, later the United States from the mid 20th century. But it's also important to say that a significant collection did go back to Nigeria's state museums in the 1950s and 60s in particular. Of course, the Oba of Benin, the current Oba is the great-great-grandson of Oba Overanwe, who was overthrown in 1897. He and his predecessors have always wanted these objects back. So from their point of view, this is absolutely not a new issue. But as everyone on this conversation knows, it's an issue that has taken on extraordinary momentum over the last five years. I think some crucial points, President Macron of France going to Ouagadougou and Burkina Faso in uh, 2017, making a, a quite strong speech that took people by surprise, effectively saying it was no longer acceptable for Africa's cultural heritage to be predominantly in European museums. He commissioned a report, the Sar Savoir report. It came out the next year, it was much stronger than many people in Europe had anticipated. It pertained specifically to France, but it sent shockwaves, I think, through German and British museums in particular. And then, of course, there was Black Lives Matter, particularly in the summer of 2020. And if it began in the United States, focused around police brutality or police racism, it took on different forms in different parts of the world. And certainly here in London, I felt it put a, a laser sharp focus on issues of colonialism. And so there has been great momentum, great pressure around the Benin bronzes, and things have moved quite fast in the past few months. The German government saying that it intends to return its Benin bronzes. Some smaller British museums, not the British Museum with a capital B, capital M, that's its own beast, if you like, but smaller British museums saying that they want to return theirs. An initially optimistic political scene in Nigeria in which the different bodies, that is the Oba, the traditional king of Benin, 
the governor of Edo State, Nigeria's a federation, and the federal government all seem to be on the same page. And so things were moving very quickly. We can talk about this later, but I think some of that optimism has drained away in the last few weeks, uh, as there are now quite sharp differences, unfortunately, between the governor and the Oba, in particular in Benin, over what should happen to the Benin Bronzes should they come back. But it is an extraordinary time, and the Benin Bronzes are right at the heart of this very topical issue, as Charlotte and Siraj will know very well. So one of the things, Barnaby, is that there's been pushback oftentimes from the global north and the museums about sort of our museums in Nigeria specifically, but in the global south, you know, able to take these items back. And Charlotte, so glad to have you here because you've been working on these issues. Can you tell us about what is the infrastructure like? And importantly, this is where we should be really focused on what is the experiences of African museums when it comes to restitution so far? This is a critical moment for the arts and culture sector on the African continent. Over the past 15 years, there's been a significant growth in the number and range of museums and cultural institutions. And this includes nonprofit museums, arts and cultural centers, historical sites, libraries, and archives. When I was growing up in Lagos, Nigeria in the 80s, my very first museum visit was to the National Museum in Lagos. If I go to the same museum today and look directly across the street, there is a major museum that's being built. It's called the J.K. Randall Center for Yoruba History and Culture. It's designed by the architect Sheon Oduwole, and it's set to open in 2022. The J.K. Randall Center for Yoruba History and Culture is entering into a long-term agreement to receive um, about 12 wooden artworks on loan from the British Museum. They haven't agreed to return them. They've agreed to loan them in a long-term arrangement. So in this part of Lagos, if you also go down the street, there's another cultural institution. It's called Onikon House. And this is an old historical home that was built in the 1930s by descendants of Afro-Brazilian slaves who returned to Nigeria. It's a historical house that offers tours and provides talks on the history and culture of Lagos. So it's such a dynamic time in the arts and culture space. And what's happening in this part of Lagos is just a microcosm for what's happening in other cities and countries across the continent. Just recently, I began a project at Yale University, and my colleagues and I have identified a group of about 25 independent museums and cultural institutions. They span across 12 different countries on the continent, all the way from Morocco down to Zambia. And I think they really demonstrate that museum leaders in Africa are taking very innovative approaches and redefining the concept of a museum in an African context. The assumption that's often made is that museums or cultural spaces in Africa are only for elite people, or it's only tourist people who go into those spaces. And the museums I'm working with are proving that is wrong. There's a museum in the Republic of Benin called the Zinzu Foundation. It was established by um, a family, the Zinzu family, and it's headed by Mary Cecile Zinzu, who is a very strong advocate on restitution. One of the earliest exhibitions that this museum mounted was an exhibition of the late Malian photographer, Malik Sidibe. And within the first few months of opening this exhibition, the museum had 1.3 million visitors come into its space. And the majority of those visitors were actually young people. You know, the museum has embraced um, social media. They have hashtags, they have campaigns, they have partnerships with local schools in Benin to bring young people into the museum. So that's a very exciting development. 
you know, oftentimes people say to me, arts and culture is just a luxury. I think what's interesting about the group of museums and cultural institutions I'm working with is that they're demonstrating that this sector is vital for job creation and growth. There is an institution in Kenya called Bookbank, which was established in 2017. And their mission is to restore iconic public libraries in Kenya. And they've started working on a large project with the largest library in Nairobi. This organization now employs 30 full-time workers. They also offer employment to up to 90 workers in the construction sector as they've gone about restoring these public buildings in Nairobi. I think this is really interesting and exciting when you look at the job creation potential. These libraries were actually created with the intention of keeping Africans out. Their collections were originally quite racist in terms of their materials. And I think it's so amazing to see young entrepreneurs taking these old institutions, Africanizing them, and really redirecting them in a way that is significant in terms of job creation. So in summary, the museum and cultural sector in Africa is one that's growing. I think there's a lot more research and data gathering that needs to happen on the sector, but it is clear that these institutions are playing a role and they're critical in Africa's economic and social transformation. I really love that, Charlotte. Not only is it inspiring what's happening, but I think it sort of counters some of the stereotypes that we're hearing about some of the museums. But Siraj, I want you to help us and maybe expand a little bit on what Charlotte said and just add your own perspective. You're one of the principal investigators of the international project Action for African Cultural Restitution, AARC. What else do people need to know about museums and this issue of restitution? Thank you so much, Judd. And it was just so beautiful listening to Charlotte. Uh, She could have gone on for much longer. We are called Action for Restitution to Africa. And it's a project that was originally conceived before lockdown, before the pandemic, to have conversations about what needs to be put in place to enable restitution to be realized, to build the possibilities of African restitution claims. We are going about the project in a very different way that involves the making of inventories, provenance research, and building a knowledge bank of what artifacts Uh, from different African societies are held in what European repositories and museums. But I suppose the most important work that we have to do is about what we mean by restitution itself, because we often limit ourselves to a meaning of restitution that has to do with the legal, the diplomatic, the collections management aspect, and the question of where the most ethical and politically appropriate location is for the artwork and the artifact to be located. And obviously, when you're dealing with histories of looting, and when you realize just the extent to which museums have not merely been beneficiaries of expeditions of conquest, but were embedded in the very process of conquest itself, you learn the extent to which museums are not the kinds of institutions of care that we really associate them with. But we are learning about just the extent to which restitution does not only mean physical movement and the physical return of the object into a new African National Museum, but restitution is a project of social restoration. You're talking about generations of people 
who have lived in many cases with their dignity in tatters as a result of conquest, as a result of what colonization did to people's image of themselves. Colonialism was such a multifaceted process. And we also need to think of the different ways in which colonialism operated to be able to address the problematic of Southern Africa with its settler internal colonialism and what kinds of conditions those produced. And so in our project in South Africa, we work with colleagues in Namibia because we realize that there is restitution work that needs to be done between South Africa and Namibia. Uh, South Africa was a regional power in a sense with its own empire in Southern Africa as a kind of sub-regional power. And it had formal colonial authority over Namibia. And at the same time, I mean, as you spoke about earlier, we are needing to think about restitution alongside decolonization. Because we have to think about the concepts and the knowledge systems that surround the artifacts and artworks. And here we are really talking about the problematic of the ethnographic, of what in Germany and elsewhere they call the ethnological, and the extent to which African people were colonized through ethnology, through the ethnographic museum. And we also need to understand the extent to which human remains collected for the purposes of racial science and taken into museums in Europe and in a society such as South Africa, that that racial science developed in a very close association with what we call cultural anthropology. So what's become very clear across Kenya, Ghana, South Africa, is that the ethnographic museum has no future in the democratic possibilities of remaking African societies, that the ethnographic museum is an institution of conquest. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done at an epistemic level, and there is work to be done at very basic level of creating the institutions of widening the democracy. You know, Charlotte has just spoken so beautifully about these different forms of museum that we have from Morocco to Zambia, as she put it, in Kenya, because we are really talking about completely redefining what we mean by museum outside of the regulatory forms of citizenship with which it was inaugurated and really enabling the museum not to be a space of the government of objects and people, but where the museum is the space of conversation, the space of debate, the space in which people can go and express themselves. Siraj, the way that you have broadened the definition of restitution, right, to be restoration, redefinition, decolonization, all of these concepts, I think really sets up us nicely for the remainder of our conversation. Maybe we'll just start back with you, Barnaby. The final chapter of your book is we can make it a win-win. That's not your quote. I believe that was someone associated with the Oba's Palace. But what are people in Nigeria saying about the way forward, whether it's the governor or the federal government, the Oba's Palace? And maybe what do you see as the way forward? Well, I, I was delighted that Charlotte spoke about uh, Shemu Adewole's plans in, in Lagos. I, I had the privilege to, to meet him in, in London just, just this week and his vision for, I think he's now calling it the John Randall 
centre just over the road from the National Museum. And that's su such a powerful metaphor because the National Museum of Lagos is a dying institution, a colonial institution, but one that at the time of the late 1950s, early 1960s, there was such hope around it. In, in my book, I, I explain how thousands of people were cramming to get into it. And now just over the road, Cheon is trying to build the kind of museum, as Siraj says, which starts conversations and is not a place of objects in, in glass vitrines, a dead space. And I know that is what Sir David Ajayi's vision is for the new museum in, in Benin City. I can see a book uh, by him behind you there, John. Uh, he, he says, you know, he has to, he has to create a place that, that speaks to people. So that there are, of course, grounds for great optimism. I think particularly the Benin bronzes, the objects I know the most about, it was Governor Godwin Obasaki who said we can make this win-win. What he meant was there are so many thousands of Benin bronzes that there are, to put it crudely, more than enough to go round, that the Edo people can be reconnected with their heritage, the federal government can have a wonderful collection, but also millions of people in London, in New York, in Tokyo, in Mexico City uh, can share in, in this wonderful heritage whilst acknowledging all the things that have gone wrong in the past. But I, I do think things are moving very quickly. And I think this is worth bearing in mind, talking to people who are trying to set up the new Edo Museum in Benin City. They say, you know, frankly, the problem is not a shortage of European or American museums that want to give objects back. We've got more than enough of those. Uh, the, the challenge is here in Nigeria. We Nigerian politicians, Nigerian competing interests have to align our positions. We cannot afford to squander this golden opportunity and this zeitgeist, which we're all feeling at the moment. Will it be the zeitgeist in, in five years? I don't know. There's an amazing opportunity uh, that should not be missed, I feel. Thanks, Barnaby. And just a plug for the book behind me, it's Ajaji's Africa Architecture, and it's it's got it goes through the Sahel forest area, savanna, and sort of looks at it sort of without borders, what's the different kind of architecture. It's just a, an awesome coffee table book and, and really insightful. But back to the subject at hand, Charlotte, building on Barnaby's points, and what is the type of resource mobilization that we need to see in capacity building to do what you're talking about and Siraj is talking about and Barnaby's talking about? Yeah, so Siraj and, and, and Judd, I'm so happy you mentioned the District 6 Museum. It's one of the museums um, in the group that I described, and it's been such a pleasure to work with this particular museum. You know, we recently did an in-depth needs assessment of museums in the group that I work with. And the District 6 Museum, as well as the majority of the museums in the group, all identified the lack of financial resources as their major constraint. And if we're to catalyze the arts and culture sector on the continent, we absolutely have to address the shortage of funding resources for the sector and for professionals who work within it. Many museums have been created through philanthropic support. You know, across the continent, there's a long tradition of arts philanthropy and patronage. And you can see that in this new generation of museums that are being established, but the resources are not enough. Now, I come from a development finance background. I'm relatively new to the museum sector. So I have had a good overview of the different financial instruments across Africa that could be used 
in museums and cultural institutions, and they're lacking. When I look at the foundations, when I look at the multilateral development banks or the impact investment funds that have been set up over the years, very few of them are dedicated or have an interest in funding the arts and culture sector, which I think is unfortunate, and I think that needs to change. We also have to begin thinking about resources that are not just grants. Many of the museums, including District 6, have been recipients of smaller size grants from private foundations, primarily in the United States. But this is not enough. We need a range of financial tools and instruments to really, really build the sector beyond where it is today. And lastly, I'll mention Western museums and their role um, in this. When I speak to many colleagues, museum colleagues, primarily in the United States, many of them will tell me, we wanna do the right thing. And you know, many of them are involved in discussions on returning objects to countries. I don't think that's enough. I think doing the right thing isn't just simply about sending an object back to its home or its roots. It's really thinking creatively and strategically about the financial resources that should accompany that to build research and capacity building of museums and institutions in Africa. I think where restitution negotiations fall short is that they haven't adequately addressed the need for financing. There's been a lot of focus on return of objects, but there's not enough focus on financing and growing the capacity of the sector. You know, we've talked in this episode again and again about District 6, and so maybe we should end there. And I said this earlier, but I studied in South Africa, my first experience 21 years ago, and that was the first place they took me, Siraj, was to District 6, the sort of the organizers of this study abroad. And it framed my entire experience in South Africa, and perhaps it framed my entire career working in African politics. And one of the things that is resonated so much with me is that it, it was memorializing what was lost under apartheid and under the racial discrimination laws. And I think there's some really interesting lessons here about the District Six Museum success and how to think about restitution and heritage and memories. Can you end the episode with some of your thoughts on the successes and what we can learn? Uh, thank you very much, Judd. It's very interesting listening to you talking about uh, this study abroad. I spent many years teaching study abroad. Um, and who knows, I might have met you. <laughs> it's possible. But I had the enormous pleasure of being on the board for 22 years and of being a member of the Civic Association in the 1980s that gave birth to the District 6, Hands of District 6 project and the concept of the District 6 Museum as a, as a memory project. And I've written extensively about the museum. You know, I'm the author of the catalogue about the museum and have an article in a book right here, a great book called Museum Frictions about the making of the District 6 Museum and its, its peculiarities and its special characteristics. And I come from District 6. You know, I was born in District 6. I went to school in District 6. And I've, I come out of the, the genealogy of cultural formations in District 6, in which the District 6 Museum was the inheritor of a legacy of independent education a legacy of public scholarship, a legacy of cultural life and intellectual life and the creation of institutions of culture and debate by a population who were excluded from 
university life and created their own discussion clubs and debating forums. And the District 6 Museum became a formal museum in the sense of having a collection in a building by accident. And that's part of its success was that it was always conceived as a museum of process, a museum as a project. And of course, it had an object in developing alongside a land restitution process and was always very aware of the extent to which it was a project of intervening in society, of rethinking land restitution, not just of land as property, but in thinking about land as containing imprints of culture, of, of land really being landscape. So yes, the museum has been a space of participation, debate that has occurred every day on the map painting. It's occurred in all of the, the curatorial features of the museum with its uh, embroidered cloth of inscriptions made by former residents. And in the presence of the old street name signs, that were the original street name signs that were assembled by the person charged with the task of demolishing District 6. But the importance of the District 6 Museum is not just the subject matter of addressing a certain kind of experience of apartheid and how people have survived. The importance of the District 6 Museum is also methodological in the ways in which it has worked with pasts and memories and what it has done to enable a conversation to occur between differently located forms of expertise. This is a new form of public history in which expertise is taken into the museum itself, into public culture, and where the academics come to the museum for their own education. This is a tremendous space of a vital methodology of conversation, exchange, of combination of different forms of resources by artists, by former residents, yes, by scholars. And all together, this makes a methodology of a museum. The most important work in recent years by the museum has taken place on the landscape itself. As that landscape is experiencing the slow process of land restitution through the building of homes and the return of a displaced community, the museum is actively involved in forms of inscription, of entering the landscape, of making a museum in the practice of life itself. So that District 6 is not just a place where people live and a place where people are being returned to, but District 6 is a new imaginary of how to be a human being in a democratic world. Siraj, Barnaby, Charlotte, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really incredible. I want to encourage our listeners to please check out Loot, Britain, and Benin Bronzes. It is definitely worth your time. 
It's a fantastic read. In the show notes, we'll have links to everyone's stuff because I am sure our listeners want to learn more and engage. So thanks everyone for your time and the next episode will be up in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.